Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn, and today more than ever before, companies, brands, and their partners need to stand for something beyond the bottom line. I've created this program to provide insights and ideas to share with you so that you can apply them to your work the very next day. The goal here is to up-level your purpose and to benefit companies and society. So please join us. With me today is Erin Mizan, and she is Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer of one of my favorite B2B companies in the world, Interface. Now, for those of you in the know, you know that Interface makes carpet, and specifically carpet tiles. For those of you who don't know, this is an amazing story. It's a story about Ray Anderson, their CEO, and it dates back to 1993 when he started his company. And for about 20 years, he ran the company. He made carpet tiles. He had no idea about sustainability. But at age 60, he had this one of those epiphany moments. And he says this on a wonderful video on YouTube. And he says, you know, am I going to retire? Am I going to chase that little white ball? Or am I going to do something else? And his employees then and his customers then asked the question, what are you doing for the environment? And he, in the greatest amount of candor, said, I had no answers. And so what we're going to talk about today is this amazing turning point in a CEO's life um, where he got religion. It took him, he had to learn. And Erin had the wonderful opportunity because she has been at the company. Um, she worked with Ray for about seven years before he passed away in 2011. So she says 18 years. And so um, we're going to talk to her about the company, her experience with Ray, the exciting things they're doing today. But at the very heart of Interface, through all this amazing work that was inspired by the visionary Ray Anderson, is their purpose, which is to lead industry to love the world. So first, I have to just stop the introduction and welcome to the show, Erin. Thanks so much, Carol. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Well, 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 thank you so much for joining us. And a little bit about Erin. She's the CSO for Interface. And in this, in this job, she gives her voice to the company's conscience. I love that. That's in her LinkedIn definition. Ensuring that strategy and goals are in sync with its aggressive sustainability vision established more than 20 years ago. Today, Interface has evolved its thinking to go beyond doing less harm to creating positive impacts. And we're going to hear about some of their exciting initiatives towards that end. And their goal is not just to be one of the world's most environmentally appropriate, sensitive, positive companies, but also to teach the world um, and sharing their incredible um, knowledge and innovations. 
Um, as CSO, Aaron leads a global team that provides technical assistance and support to their audacious goals to be climate positive. As well, she helps the company's global business addressing sustainability at all levels from operations and management to employees and customers and in policy forums. And I love to also note that she's got a legal background. So she knows the goods. So I'm one, a recovering lawyer. You're recovering lawyers. <laughs> I love that. So why don't we get started? We always do a by the numbers segment. So you have a sense of the company that we're talking about. Interface was founded in 1973. Their headquarters is Atlanta, Georgia. Their revenues are north of $1.1 billion. They have over 3,700 employees, and their sales reach beyond 100 countries around the globe. They have seven manufacturing locations on four continents, and they are a publicly held company. And I'd love to just hear a little bit about your background, and then what is your purpose, Erin? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Carol. I consider my purpose to be, you know, I wanted to spend my professional career doing something uh, associated with the environment. And I, I mean, I had that idea when I was seven or eight years old. Um, oh, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Seven or eight years. <laughs> I got to stop you there. Yeah. Se- what just... happened at seven or eight years old that you said, I'm going to be an environmentalist? I think it was just, my parents were so fantastic. I grew up in Michigan and every summer we would go to kind of our lake house and I would have the opportunity to spend most of my days during the summer outside experiencing the natural world. And that was kind of what I fell in love with. And, you know, then the world tells you, well, at some point you have to grow up, you have to go to college, you have to have a career, you can't live with your parents forever, you have to pay for yourself. And in thinking about what that trajectory would be for me, you know, I just thought I have to protect this. I have to find a way that my, how I, you know, pay for myself, what my living and my career is, will be tied to this. So ultimately, um, when I was an undergraduate, I realized the value of being an advocate, being involved in everything from the Sierra Club to campus, um, you know, protests and marches. And then I, you know, kind of realized maybe the best thing you can do is become a professional advocate. I went to law school, became an environmental lawyer, and, you know, ultimately ended up in a government role. And then that's where I discovered Interface, saw Ray give a speech, and was so excited about that mission that when Interface contacted me and said, hey, we have this job, it's an analyst role, do you want to join the company? I was sold. Interface contacted you for a job and you had met Ray, you had seen Ray. What was your first impression of Ray? Because I want to talk a little, he is the most amazing individual. When he passed away, unfortunately, at the age of 77 in 2011, I think the New York Times, the Washington Post headline was the greenest, what, CEO in America. Yes, they called him that. I mean, I was heartbroken, right? Because he was... The first time I saw Ray give a speech talking about his vision, his epiphany, and what he was trying to do at Interface, it was the first time I ever considered working for a company. Um, You know, he just had this amazing vision and this energy and was so authentic about 
what the company was trying to do, you couldn't help but be attracted to that. And I remember saying to my boss at the time, who was at this uh, dinner and Ray was the keynote, and I turned to my boss and I said, that guy is amazing. And he said, oh, I know him. If you want to meet him, I'll, I'll introduce you to him. And he's like, the weird thing is, this guy runs a carpet company. (laughs) 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 Um, And so, yeah, fast forward a couple of years later, uh, it was probably about a year and a half later. I knew a woman who worked at Interface and she was moving on uh, to a different role in the company. And she reached out to me and said, you should really think about coming to work for Interface. And I kind of put two and two together and have never regretted the decision of coming to Interface. Can you talk a little bit about the early milestones in Interface's sustainability journey? Ray has this epiphany, and one of the first things he does is share that vision with a small group of leaders in the business. And, you know, frankly, they were stunned. And so Ray quickly got to work and I think did two or three really important things. The first thing that he did is he reached out to Paul Hawken, who as a business person, entrepreneur, environmentalist, was the person who wrote the book that led to Ray Anderson's shift in thinking. It was from the ecology of commerce. So the first thing Ray did was acknowledge, I am a really smart person, but I don't know how to do this at Interface. Shifting a company that is you know, resource dependent and having negative impacts on the planet to one that would have no environmental impact and ultimately be restorative, I don't know how to do that. So I need to surround myself with some people who can help me figure this out. So he actually wrote a letter to Paul Hawken and said, I was really inspired by your book. I'm trying to change my company to be a model of sustainability and I need your help. So he quickly um, got Paul's attention. And then with Paul, they built a team of advisors, including uh, David Brower, one of the first executive directors, you know, like a co-founder of the Sierra Club, um, Amory Levins at Rocky Mountain Institute, and and you know um, Bill McDonough, and and great he people. got this yeah. great, you know, he called them the Eco Dream Team. So he surrounded himself with a really smart group of people who could challenge him, but also help him chart a course for the company. And I think that was one of the best smartest things that he did. The second really smart thing that he did was that group and Ray and some senior leaders in the business created a framework for how the business is going to shift. And they asked themselves a really powerful question. If nature designed a company, what would it look like and how would it function? And that led them to, you know, appreciating that we had to make systemic change that we had to strive for zero waste because nature wastes nothing, that we had to have goals like 100% renewable energy because nature runs on renewable energy. So first, getting the advisory group. Second, building this ambitious framework for the business that had amazing goals and targets and really forced Interface to start measuring their environmental impacts, I think were the two most important early kind of things. And then the big early win was launching a global waste program called Quest, where the company set really aggressive waste targets. And to implement that, they designed this amazing company program that they named Quest. 
And Quest had a bunch of different facets, but some of it was creating cross-functional teams in the factory. Mm. Some of it was making sure that sustainability goals on waste were tied into compensation and bonuses. Some of it was, you know, really bringing sustainability, this big concept. I mean, imagine people in our sales teams in our factory here, Ray, deliver this vision of wanting to be a company that has zero environmental impact and ultimately be restorative. And everyone is thinking, how the heck are we going to do that? What is he talking about? <laughs> so launching this, you know, really specific program on waste made it very tangible for people to understand one of the first things we're going to do on sustainability, guys, is stop wasting things and frankly, stop throwing away materials that we spend money on. It made sustainability very tangible. And it also provided Ray with a really early talking point to the street. You know, investors would sort of say, what the heck are you guys doing? You make carpet. Why are you talking about carrying capacity and zero impact? And and how much is this going to cost us? And isn't this just a diversion from, you know, what you're supposed to be doing, which is making carpet? And And Ray would say, well, you know, last year we saved $50 million. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Three years in, yeah. we've saved $150 million off the bottom line by just not wasting stuff. So those were kind of some of the early wins. And, th- and then I know that in some of his videos, he talks about just walking around and saying his his vision again and again and again and again. Um, and, and that's a key learning for all sorts of all CEOs and C-suite leaders, which is that you may tire of the message, but your people haven't heard it enough. That's a very good point. Yeah. 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 And I wonder, can you can you recall um, one or two of your favorite Ray Anderson stories? I'm sure you've got more than two. Oh, well, I mean, it's funny. Like I on this theme, Carol, of being consistent. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, one of my favorite stories is, you know, it's not just being consistent, but the idea of the most powerful guy in the company whether that's the founder or the CEO, you know, your leader showing up and face-to-face -face talking about this with you is hugely important, right? And so Ray used to say he, he felt like he had done that forever the first couple <laughs> right. of years. And of course, there's such a politeness associated with the CEO coming. You know, there's polite clapping, but nobody jumps up and gives him a hug or sort of says, hallelujah, <laughs> right. like I get right. it, right? right? So he recalls saying like, I had no idea if, if, if it was resonating, if people were just being polite, if they thought I had gone up the deep end. <laughs> and so one of his, you know, most rewarding moments was coming back from visiting our manufacturing plant, um, Bentley Print Street in California. And after his visit, receiving a poem from an employee who was there listening to him share his vision. And the poem was called Tomorrow's Child. Mm, and it was all amazing. about, you know, it, it, so it was by this amazing, you know, fellow Glenn Thomas. And it was all about um, his realization that what Ray was talking about was um, how we create a different future for our children and grandchildren. And getting that poem from Glenn Thomas Ray described as so kind of wonderful and just a, a moment when you finally were like, at least one person is getting what I'm saying, right? And so that was one of my kind of favorite, favorite stories to hear 
Ray recount that and, you know, say it takes a lot as a leader to be vulnerable enough to share that you've had an epiphany that you want to take the company in a different direction. And what a great kind of validation to have one person say like, I get it too. And I think that must've been very powerful for Ray over the years to see how many people really got the connection that he got. Yeah. And there's a couple, I just have a couple lines from tomorrow's child here. Tomorrow's child yet unborn. I saw a day you would see things I do threaten you. And and I think he said he wept after he heard he read that poem. And and he was the CEO that was not to your point. You said it very early on. He was not afraid to be vulnerable. He was humble in a wonderful kind of Southern way. Mm-hmm. And in opening up himself to saying, I did not know what this journey would be, but we had to do it. That must have made him, I would call him a servant leader. So I wonder if there's any other story you might share about Ray and his management, the way he worked with you to truly, because in those early days, people did not believe what he saw. Absolutely. I mean, I think the one thing that he probably the lasting influence on me would be being very comfortable being humble. And so one of the first things that I did maybe a year into working at Interface, um, I was on the analyst side. I was doing a lot of the work on our data, you know, the interface greenhouse gas inventory, working on renewable energy procurement for our plants But my boss would say, you know, the only way you're going to learn how we tell our story is if you go on the road with Ray. And so he'd say, you know, he'd he'd call me in and he'd say, Ray's going up to Canada for three days and you're going to go up to Canada with Ray and just listen. And, you know, and Ray would have these crazy schedules, right? I mean, he would have a keynote at like eight in the morning. Then he would go see customers. Then he would do a luncheon keynote. Then he was being, you know, interviewed on the local news. And then he would have a dinner for customers and then something else. So it's this crazy schedule, right? And he was really good at delivering a very consistent message. So we, you know, I would get to kind of see not just his articulation of what we were doing, but the impact that had on our customers. And so we would get to talking and I would sort of, he would sort of ask me, well, did you have any skeptics at your table? (laughs) 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 How did people really respond? And I would just sort of say like, overall, I, you know, I think it's working. I think it's going over. And I remember him saying to me, a couple of the most important things that we do here are, we're really humble. And we have to give credit for all the work that's happening in this company to the people who are actually doing the work, whether that's our innovation and R&D teams, whether it's our operations teams in the factory. But the you know other thing is we don't greenwash. We don't oversell it. Ray was incredibly sensitive to us not overtelling the story, so much so that in the first couple of years, he didn't want our salespeople to talk about it. He was afraid we were going to overpromise something. Interesting. And yeah, so he was very, very religious about the numbers. If you had ever seen an old speech of his, he usually starts off by this exhaustive kind of list of numbers about how we're doing on reducing waste and reducing uh, fossil energy. 
And so the things I really took away from him were our desire to be transparent, but do that with humility and credibility, but also the power that having a purpose-led company, the power of that and the privilege of working for a company where you feel good about coming to work and you feel good about contributing. So it was so embedded into the company that it's now been, it's 10 years since he passed away. And so you have had two really exciting initiatives. And so those, I'm sure, is part of the way that you embedded sustainability into the company. So let's talk a little bit about Mission Zero um, and how that was formed, what it was. And then you also, you hit your goal, I think, what, a year early? Yes, yes. It's So Mission Zero is kind of the quick summary of of the work that we did starting with Race Epiphany in 1994 and really ending in 2019. And so Ray had this idea that the company should strive to have zero environmental impact. And he, at that point in 94, hadn't even defined all the areas where we needed to have zero environmental impact, right? It was so broad. It was, the company will have no negative impact by 2020 and then we'll go to regenerative, right? And so he and this environmental dream team built the systems and the goals and targets within Mission Zero. And it was things like zero waste, um, zero carbon emissions, 100% renewable energy usage. And I think the power of zero at the time, Carol, like the power of a really ambitious goal, I, I think had a really startling effect on kicking off innovation on getting employees to focus and notice it on getting our customers to notice it. It's such an argument for the value of setting an ambitious goal that you don't know that you can achieve because it gets attention and focus and energy versus an incremental goal, which, you know, you might always get to, but you're never going to exceed. And so I think the power of mission zero was first, it's just sheer ambition. But secondly, then what Interface did, which is systematically over 15, 16 years invest and show that it was possible to get to things like 91% reduced waste to landfill, 100% renewable energy, um, you know, uh, reduction in water usage in the 80 percentile. Like, w- we managed to get to the high 80s and 90s in a lot of those operational footprint areas. And then even beyond that, you know, it inspired the company to try to have zero uh, carbon footprint in products, which is not us, it's our supply chain. So, you know, over that same course of time, Interface has reduced the product carbon footprint 76%. Mm. And so, you know, we had come to the realization really in 2015, 2016 timeframe that we were getting pretty close to zero in a lot of these metrics, but the simultaneous kind of insight that we took away from that is that's not good enough for the business community. That's not good enough given where the world is now. We actually have to go further. So in 2019, we sort of said, we're going to say three things. We're going to declare that we have delivered on Ray's original vision and tell people how far we got we're simultaneously going to acknowledge that maybe we went even a little further given 
the influence we've had on our supply chain, on our customers, and on our competitors. I look at things like the recycled nylon that was developed for Interface for our products now is able to be used by all of our competitors and used by many of our competitors, but it's also gone into um, now collections and lines by Gucci and Prada. So, you know, you think about kind of the environmental ripple effect that we've had. So you look at what we've done to get to zero, you look at the influence. And then the third thing we sent in 2019 is all that's great, but Ray would want us to go beyond zero. Ray would want us to go further. So let's declare we've delivered what we can, you know, inspired by Ray, with Ray, and now for Ray. Um, And let's go further for him and start to imagine what is beyond zero. And for us, that's positive. And that was manifested in the new mission that we named in 16. Which is Climate Take Back. This climate take back. Yeah, which I love the video. We're going to put a link um, in our show note to the video, which is it's just so delicious. But we'll talk about climate take back and talk about your goals, because I think the goals are quite fascinating. As you kind of grapple with this realization of shifting from a company that's getting out of this do no harm mindset to positive mindset, if you want to be a business that has positive impacts, that has huge implications for you your language and your goals and your targets. So we felt like we'd moved out of the era of saying we want to be a company with, you know, no harm to we want to be a company that helps solve some of the world's largest challenges. And after talking to our employees and our customers and some of our stakeholders beyond those groups, including our environmental dream team, you know, we realized that our goal our mission should be to solve the world's biggest sustainability challenge, which is global warming. So in 2016, we launched Climate Take Back with a goal of reversing global warming. And it's hugely ambitious, right? I mean, come on. But the point is we have to start kind of, we have to start naming the problems we want to solve and get out of this corporate sustainability speak of just my little company our little supply chain needs to be more sustainable. More sustainable for what? To solve the biggest challenges we have. Well, let's just make that the goal. So you've got these giant goals. You're going to solve global warming with climate um, take back. So um, you've got four goals. You have live zero, love carbon, lead the industrial re-revolution, and let nature cool. So each one of those, I'd love you to unpack a little bit because one, they grab your attention and it also, I'm sure it's, it's a roadmap to begin to kind of really make an impact on global warming. Absolutely. So the first question you ask, if you say we're going to embrace this challenge of reversing global warming, the first question our CEO asks was, what are we going to do? What is the pathway? What are we going to invest in in the business, right? So immediately we had to look to science because there's not a popular, a lot of popular literature out there. There's not a lot of business strategies focused on reversing global warming. We looked to the work of Johan Rockström and the Stockholm Resilience Center, and we looked at their trajectory and their pathway. And it's pretty simple that there's three things we need to do. We need to deeply decarbonize. We need to remove the excess carbon from the atmosphere. And we have to do both of those things while protecting and enhancing the planet's natural sinks. 
So if that was the scientific pathway, Interface adopted that as the framework. And we said, we as a business need to mirror what science tells us we have to do. So we have to keep decarbonizing our business as quickly as possible. We've set a science-based target to have all scopes of our emissions by 2030 and then to be a carbon negative business by 2040. So that's about decarbonizing. But the second piece is we have to be a part of the solution of removing all of this excess carbon from the atmosphere. So how we are doing that is innovating to make our products carbon sinks, to make our products store carbon. And then the third pathway is we have to run our business in a way that helps protect and enhance natural sinks. That's let nature cool. So we completely just took the scientific pathway and said, that's going to be our business pathway. Climate take back's been in the market for a while. First of all, talk about your products, because it's interesting how you've made your products and a portion of your products. Um, and I read a little bit, by the way, congratulations on that New York Times story on carbon tech. That yeah, was thanks. a great story. I learned a lot from it. And we'll put a link on that one, too. And you Thank talk you. about like like a layer, the layer of your carpet and, and, you know, the top and the middle and the bottom. Talk about how part of it is a carbon sink, which is amazing. Right. And so, you know, what we can do, and I think each company will be uniquely challenged, but I think that pathway is relevant. Each company has to deeply decarbonize. Each company has to figure out how they can become a sink, whether it's their operation, their services, their products. So for us, it was about, you know, since we make products, finding a way that those carpet tiles could become a carbon sink or could be in the language we use in the market, carbon negative. That means we measure the full life cycle impact of the product. And from cradle to gate, those products store more carbon in their materials than they emit. And so how we were able to do that is a couple of things. The first is new raw materials that are bio, that store the carbon and trap the carbon and keep it in those raw materials. But it's those new raw materials combined with like the 15 years of innovation to get extremely low carbon footprint manufacturing, other recycled materials in the product, plus these new biomaterials. When you combine kind of those three things, you get this moment where we can suddenly by measurement actually say, these tiles are a positive. They store more carbon than it takes to admit them from the entire cradle-to-gate process. No offsets involved, just materials. So how do your customers um, respond to this? And is, are any of them even promoting it? Because, you know, your, your products are used a lot in offices, but they're also in a CVS or also at airports. They're also, there's some even consumer use. You know, imagine I'm walking into my CVS and I'm going to like, I'm going to do some good. I'm walking on this, this incredible interface carpet, <laughs> which is like, you know, it's sucking up the carbon. I love it. But what, how did your your customers respond? So I think like, you know, all customers and like all of us, there's a spectrum of people who instantly make the connection. And then there's a spectrum of people that we have to bring along. So we sell a lot in the commercial office space. And there are lots of architects and designers who understand that building and construction is responsible for 40% of global carbon emissions. Yeah, built environment. Yeah. And there are lots of, yeah, there are lots of people who don't yet understand that. So in some 
in some kind of, in a small percentage of our customers, those people who get that, Carol, see the immediate potential of carbon neutral and carbon negative products because they realize this means I can design low carbon spaces, which is what maybe our tech company customers want, which is maybe what some large corporate end user companies want because they've made commitments to carbon neutrality and are realizing that their real estate and their procurement can play a big role. So I would say there's a small but growing part of our customer base that is really excited about carbon negative. Um, And I think, you know, we're on an early wave where that's only going to grow because the more we are out there helping our customers make the connection between the work that they do to buy flooring, which seems like an unexciting A thankless job for many people, I'm sure, until you realize I actually can have an impact on global warming here. If every product that I chose for flooring was carbon neutral or carbon negative, once you add those up, given the sheer amount of flooring that goes into offices and buildings, it becomes a pretty big number in terms of tons of carbon. And you can have an impact there. And I think when we're able to turn the light bulb on for people there, not only are they excited about the product, they're excited that they, as an individual, it gets back to why I do this work, can actually do something about it, (laughs) can do something about this huge challenge, which has us all feeling many days like we can't do anything. Overwhelmed. Right. And we can't solve it at at, at all. Have any of your um, customers, B2B or B2C, promoted this new type of carpet that's part of climate take back? Um, I think it's still early days. So they aren't actively kind of like putting it on their website, but there are some large companies and I wish I could mention them, but just for their privacy, I don't. There are some large tech companies who have decided this is going to be our standard product that we buy from Interface. Everything is going to be carbon negative. And what's kind of cool is We already started from a great place in 2018, given all the work that I told you we had done for 15 years, we were able to make all of our products carbon neutral as a standard attribute. And, you know, it's because we've done so much reduction that we can afford to do that because we do have to buy some offsets for the last part of the life cycle, which is the customer use. Um, you know, how they maintain the products, vacuum cleaning emits energy, which has a carbon implication. Um, And we obviously, if we had done nothing to reduce the footprint of those products, we couldn't make them all carbon neutral. But I think we're increasingly seeing more customers really understand the value of buying carbon neutral. And, And I think more and more customers will then move to negative as our product options expand on carbon negative. And how do your sales folks feel about uh, climate take back? I mean, it would, you'd think it would give them an amazing story to tell on top of it, a, you know, amazing story from, you know, Mission Zero. Absolutely. I mean, like we have to compete on performance, design, price and sustainability. So it's not easy to be a salesperson in the flooring world. I think this purpose, you know, being part of a company that says we are taking on global warming head on and it's going to be manifested in really innovative products makes it really easy for them, Carol, because you can talk about the mission of your company all day long, 
But by making the products carbon neutral and now offering carbon negative, there is a physical manifestation that they can put down on the table in front of a customer that says, first of all, you can believe us. <laughs> um, but let me show you how this really lofty you know, vision and mission that we have actually connects to what I'm going to sell you today. And by the way, what I'm going to sell you today helps you on your carbon goals. Because all these big companies, all of our customers have scope three carbon emissions as a result of what they buy. So, I mean, I think they're extremely motivated. Um, and I think our salespeople are both excited to work for a company that frankly gives a damn <laughs> and is doing <laughs> right. something about it, but also is doing something about it in a very tangible way that relates to their job. And you have uh, 3,700-ish employees. Yep. We have about 3,700 people around the world. We sell in hundreds of markets around the world, you know, Latin America, North America, Canada, all over Europe, Asia Pacific. And to a person and to a place, there are inspired salespeople in every part of those global organizations that really, really get it and really get excited about coming to work to sell flooring. And it's not because it's selling flooring. It's because it's selling flooring for a company that gives a damn and the products are really going to manifest that mission. And not to put you on the spot, you don't have to give me the number, but I would assume that your turnover is pretty low based on being who you are and what you do. HR has been one of the areas where I think Interface has not been as focused or as good about measuring as we have been in the environmental area. So actually just this year, we launched Workday. And prior to that, getting statistics, because I write our um, UN Global Compact Report, getting statistics on things like turnover and current employee numbers and diversity has been really challenging. So um, I would say, though, that we do find that we are way beyond our competitors in terms of retention rates of employees, both at the sales and factory level. And I think we get really good people. People stay here a really long time. And I personally know in most of our factories, we have multi-generational um, families. Oh, that's amazing. Here. Oh, that's yeah. Great. So I can, you can go to our, um, you can go to our operation in LaGrange, Georgia, which is the biggest factory. And it's in the U.S. about an hour outside of Atlanta. And you can meet the Murphy family. And first it was the mother. And then there's two brothers. And it's so cool to kind of have the opportunity to see that in the business. You mentioned measurement. And we know that measurement um, is really important to you. And that you add not only for um, interface, but you also are trying to, to move the industry along. Um, and to drive transparency and innovation and measurement. Can you talk a little bit about which are the most important measurements? What's most important and how do you get it all done? I think for us, a really important metric is the carbon footprint of products. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, many companies can make commitments that are just based on their operational footprint. And we actually see competitors do this. You know, oh, we're really focused on climate. We're going to reduce the environmental impact of our business. We're going to buy some renewable energy. And then our operational footprint is like 20% lower. Well, if you're a company that makes products, typically your biggest environmental impact is in the products you make, which is from the raw materials that come from another company. 
So a really important thing is understanding what's the most material impact and where is your biggest impact. At Interface, as it relates to carbon, the biggest part of the carbon emissions in our company come from our suppliers and the raw materials that we use. So the carbon footprint of our products is super important as a barometer for what are we doing in terms of tackling the biggest and most material impacts. So we look at both the reduction in footprint over time, 76% reduction in carbon footprint of carpet tile products since the early 90s. We look at ourselves vis-a-vis competitors. So right now, Interface's global average of a product carbon footprint is uh, 4.8 kilograms of CO2 per square meter. Now that's incredibly specific, Carol, but what it tells us is it, it is a common metric that allows us to look at all of our competitors' carbon footprints against a similar category of products and see that we offer the lowest by far in the industry. Um, so that's really important. It's really important that we have a metric on carbon footprint that shows the biggest impact on our company, and we look at it over time, is it trending down? Yes, we continue to reduce the environmental footprint. How is it against competitors? We're the lowest in the industry, and we know that because everyone publishes environmental product declarations. Um, and it's also the same metric that we want our customers to look at. So if you and I were building a building uh, for a big tech company, and they said, we want a carbon neutral office, every single finish that you pick, you would try to pick the lowest footprint and you would start comparing those. That's why it's the most important thing that I look at. Aha. Yeah, I, I just love that your approach. And I also love that you're always trying to lead. This is this is climate week and we've got COP26 coming up. It's a very important moment. Um, the U.S., I think, has kind of reestablished the correct level of ambition. Uh, I look forward to the U.S. being really involved in what's happening to get the rest of the global community to raise their level of ambition and deliver the plans that we need to kind of, you know, create the reductions that need to happen. Are you going with a sense of optimism? Absolutely. I mean, the U.S. is back. I w- I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic about what the Biden administration has already done, right, which is to announce the 2030 targets, but then also obviously to start to put in place the plans to deliver the reductions in kind of the four major areas around energy and transport that we need to um you know, have happened to deliver those 2030 targets, but also, you know, some of the some of the existing policy um, associated with the large um, infrastructure package and the ties that have been made in that package and those investments to climate. So the U.S. is back. I think that's going to be really fantastic. I think the announcement this week from China um, today, I think at the U.N. General Assembly around, you know, their ambitions and focus on renewable energy and, you know, their commitments around no longer building coal-fired power, I think are huge. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm outlook. I'm still going with a sense of optimism. It's even heightened because the U.S. is back in for sure. You know, um, you're a CSO. 
Um, you're a lawyer by training. You've been at the company. You've been in a just a magical company. What sort of um, advice do you have for individuals who want to become CSOs? What do they have? To, you know, what uh, sweat do they have to like uh, put in in terms of <laughs> education? Um, you know, just working in a company. What's your uh, recommendation? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of um, a lot more options now available um, educationally than were when I was in school. I mean, you couldn't get undergraduate degrees in sustainability programs like Arizona State, you know, and their kind of undergraduate focus and programs on sustainability didn't exist. There weren't green MBAs. So I think the first is obviously um, education is super important. It doesn't mean a graduate degree, but I think the the opportunity to have an educational background in sustainability and sustainable business is a really good foundation. Uh, the second is obviously um, a, a little less about education and a little more about experience and how you position yourself to really get the right sorts of experiences. And, you know, I would say like outside of getting the right level of education, um, be very aggressive and um, forward about reaching out to companies and asking to have internships and asking to be involved in places where you want to work. I mean, what's been great about things like LinkedIn and, um, you know, our digital ability to connect with people is that it makes it very easy to follow people whose career paths you're interested in, connect with those people, um, you know, find ways to partner. So I think the first is kind of education. The second is taking the experience part of that really into your own hands. And especially when you're younger, don't be afraid to follow your passion and, and get more experience. That's how I got to interface. And on paper, I'm not sure if it was a completely unemotional assessment, I, I would have gone to interface. We unfortunately are winding down. What few insights do you have for people, you know, either C-suite or their CSO or in, in your group uh, at their work to advance their purpose journey because we're at a very important time now. And so you have learned so much. So what's the most important things that they need to look for, advocate for, push for, be aggressive? When we kind of, when we declared success on mission zero, we actually didn't publish a sustainability report. We published like the nine lessons we've learned in getting there. And I wrote that report and there, there, a lot of those lessons were really my own kind of personal experience about what did we really learn. And so I think kind of the most important takeaway for us was the power of ambitious goals. And I mean, we can't say that enough. And frankly, Carol, that's what we still continue to see from other companies is there's such a reluctance to set a target that you don't know how you can achieve. Yeah. So by the time this airs, I would have I will have interviewed Paul Pullman on his new book, Net, Im, uh, Net oh, Positive. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And he is totally in alignment with you about big, bold, audacious goals and being transparent when you miss them. We're going to just keep trying harder. So so that's a great number one. I mean, really set ambitious goals. What's number two? I think number two is the power that sustainability has when connected to innovation 
correctly. So I think companies fail to see that innovating for sustainability, whether it's you know creating a fully sustainable product or changing your operational processes, brings with it something very different than conventional innovation. So I would say you know some of the innovation problems we solve at Interface might be related to performance of the product or moisture, right? Um, and so, you know, when we kind of set those innovation goals and targets, it's all about kind of solving a customer problem, right? When we um, started focusing on carbon negative products and said we have to find a way to manifest in our products um, a reversal of global warming, we put a 12-month innovation challenge out to our team that was time-bound and said, in a year, we want you to create a prototype that stores more carbon than it emits. And just the connection of that innovation challenge to the purpose really unlocks a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of employee engagement that maybe kind of conventional innovation wouldn't. And then you extend that even further and you say, once you define a challenge like that, once you're creating a carpet tile, that stores carbon or that manifests um, an intention to reverse global warming, you can open up that innovation to a whole bunch of other people like NGOs, like green building councils, like other um, building products companies who have a similar level of desire to see a product like that come to fruition. Right. And so you suddenly have this whole ecosystem of collaborators that, when you define the challenge that way, are really ready to engage with you. And a great example of that in our history, Carol, is you know, we wanted to work with our supply chain, particularly one of our nylon suppliers, Aquafil, to get more recycled nylon into our supply chain. And instead of defining this as just like an innovation project that our team works on for recycled nylon, you know, we said we actually want to create a system in our supply chain that has a social and environmental benefit and brings recycled nylon to our supply chain in a way that has a social benefit. What ended up being created was a collaboration between Interface, the Zoological Society of London, Aquafil, our yarn supplier, and small fishing communities in the Philippines who would gather up ghost fishing nets process them, send them to Aquafil, who would make that into recycled nylon that would go into interface products that had a reduced environmental impact. So when you kind of say like, look, we're innovating to save the world here. We want to create the most sustainable supply chain or the most sustainable product. Just imagine the kind of entities who are interested in that, whether it's the ocean plastic lens or the recycled, you know, materials that can benefit communities, you suddenly have an innovation community that's not just going to put in their passion, they're going to put in their money, they're going to put in their time, and they're going to help you scale it in a really interesting way. And, and we've had loads of examples like that in our history, whether it's Zoological Society of London, whether it's the Biomimicry Institute working with us to innovate, to create like a super low waste carpet tile by 
looking to nature for design inspiration. I think that's the second lesson learned is you're kind of no longer alone on the innovation front. Oh, I totally, I totally with you on that. I mean, every single client we're working with on their purpose, we are saying you've got to innovate and you've got to not just internally, you've got to bring the outside world in. So, you know, you're just such a supreme example. What's number three? I think number three would be never forget the opportunity you have to connect purpose to your employees at all levels. And I mean, I know companies call it like employee engagement. Eh, super don't love that term. But, you know, if you're going to be a company who's going to lead with purpose and you're going to embrace this big vision, make the space to have those conversations with employees. I mean, where it all started for us was our founder read a book and he confronted, you know, he had to confront his role as an industrialist in what business had done to the planet. And he had the space to do that. And after he confronted that for himself, there's two ways you can go, Carol. You can kind of ignore it and just keep on trucking (laughs) or you can do something about it. And, you know, allowing the space for that to happen, you know, how that shows up is having um, shift meetings at the factory where we talk about this big goal and how that actually connects to what we do every day. And how do, how do manufacturing employees respond to that? Because I, I, I hear a lot of companies go, oh, no, they're not going to get it. The, you know, they're on the floor. We can't communicate with them. I think a lot of people don't want to engage in it. And so they're very dismissive of the value of doing it. But I think what we found at Interface is having those conversations, making the space for it, allowing people to connect that big purpose to what they do every day is incredibly valuable for keeping them here, having them contribute and you know, those people become ambassadors. Like we don't like to use that word, but they use their extra time, energy, intellectual capital to show up to work as a full person. And that's what we want. Yeah. Bringing their their full energy and, and just really looking at the individuals as their full potential. I love it. So we, unfortunately, this is great. We could talk forever, but my last conversation with you. My last question is you. I mean, you get the last word. Uh, There's something you haven't said, any advice to our listeners. Um, I I, I will tell absolutely that you've got Ray Anderson's ethos, you know, within your white blood cells, red blood cells, (laughs) your heart and soul. It's beautiful. Maybe I got a little osmosis. Yeah, you did. You did. Um, Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of what I tell myself every day, which is now is the time. If you are interested in sustainability, if you are currently in a position of leadership in an organization, whether you have sustainability in your title or not, and you know, and you accept what's kind of happening on the planet, um, we need you to step up. And that means getting your organization fully invested in how they confront and what their mission around sustainability is. And, you know, you can do that at many levels of an organization, but I think science is telling us this decade from 2020 to 2030 is critical for action on climate. And, you know, if you 
are an environmentalist, if you are a sustainable business person, if you are a person who breathes oxygen on this planet, (laughs) (laughs) you need to do more than you're doing right now. And I would say get involved. Find your pathway to make a difference. Find your pathway to make a difference. What a great way to end a wonderful, marvelous conversation. Um, Erin Mizan, the fire is lit in you, um, albeit Ray has passed on, but Interface continues to be a leader. And and I just like to say to our to our listeners, um, well, you've got some really great insights here about it's a B2B business, guys. I mean, there's a lot more sexy businesses out there, but look what Interface did. And it started out with just a, a wonderful leader at the age of 60 asking the question. Um, he didn't know with great humility, he had no answer to it. But he surrounded himself with some smart people, did some great reading, and he started on a journey. And so I want to thank you, Aaron, for joining us. Um, I always end with the question to our listeners. What is the power of your purpose? Step by step, we moved, we began to get traction and move up that mountain, that very high mountain. From the very beginning, you know, the metaphor of the mountain, higher than Everest. And our people, one by one, made up their own minds. Not something that anybody dictated, thou shalt do this. People adopted it on their own. And you know, and the goodwill in the marketplace is just astounding. Those same people that were asking that question 11, 12 years ago, what's your company doing, have embraced the company for what we are doing. We're changing minds and changing hearts and and we are changing the culture of a company and we're changing the culture of an industry and in time we might even change the culture of a culture. It's turning out to be a better way, a better way to make a bigger profit. Uh, the, the amazing thing is here we are 11 years into this journey and our costs are down, not up. Our products are the best they've ever been. Through David Oakey's uh, adoption of biomimicry, our people are motivated, uh, but every you know, I, I suppose when people see it, they finally they get it, and they can never unget it. Like somebody said, there's no such thing as an ex-environmentalist. When I saw carpet tiles the first time, you know, I thought, so smart, so right. When I saw sustainability and finally saw it with with Hawkins' help, it was much, very much the same feeling. So right, so smart but orders of magnitude more important. And today I would say that pioneering this new way of doing business is the ultimate purpose of Interface. It goes beyond the bottom line to a a purpose, a higher purpose that all of us can subscribe to, be part of, be motivated by, and be, be challenged by.